I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Arvid Rosengren, the wine director of Legacy Records in Manhattan. Hello, sir. How are you? I'm well. Thank you. Very nice to see you. So you grew up in a few different locations in the south of Sweden. I was born in a town called Malmo. Moved around quite a bit as, as a kid. By age 10, I'd lived 11 different places, I think. But eventually came back to Malmo. And that's where I spent my teenage years. And you had two siblings. Two siblings. One Sister was two years younger and a younger brother, seven years younger than me. What was it like growing up in that household? For the most part, it was great. I mean, loving, fantastic parents. I would say that no one in Sweden as such grows up poor. There's no like real poverty. But we certainly had periods where economy wasn't great. You know, we went through a, a bad house purchase in the early 90s and, and some troubling times in that sense when, when my little brother was born. So there were some troubling, sort of hard decisions for the family to make. So it was not a luxurious upbringing by any means. So gastronomy and wine was certainly not something that was part of my upbringing as such. There were good times too. My father was such kind of a, not an artistic type as such, but he has a full-time job now, but never did. It was always like this project and that project and this project. So it was, there were good times and there were, there were bad times. But all in all, a very loving, caring family, yeah. But knowing you a little bit, it, it sounds to me like you kind of had to take care of your family a little bit as the oldest son. My parents split up in sort of the mid-90s. So I was 12, 13. And before then, they'd lived separately too for a couple of years, sort of back and forth. So yeah, there were times my, my mom worked as a nurse. She worked classic rotation. So it happened that sometimes she worked in daytime, sometimes nighttime. I definitely had some taking care of my younger siblings there. That's when I learned how to cook, for example, because that's one thing that there was never compromises about in that household. There was always good food on the table and proper ingredients. And so I, I took great pride and I really liked that aspect of like cooking for my younger siblings. Your mom worked as a nurse and drug and alcohol rehab right yeah she's done various things but always has a nurse in psychiatric care and, and especially in in rehab yeah we have some family parallels because my mom was in psychiatry 
and then my parents got divorced very early. And I've always thought that that played into how I am on the floor, yeah. like later as a service guy, because I kind of wanted to make people happy. I didn't exactly know how to directly make them happy, but I could bring them things. Like it really kind of shaped who I became, I think, Absolutely. later. I feel the same way, I think. And having sort of analyzed this at a later point, I've always been a sort of perpetual overperformer, never really being happy with, with the outcome, whether that was in school or in sports or in later when I was you know, competing to be a good sommelier and working. It's always striving to be better. I think I've found a balance in that now, but it, for a very long time, it was probably not that balanced. It was a little too overambitious and hard on myself. Because uh, skipping ahead about 20 years, you did end up winning the world's best sommelier contest, which is a huge deal. Yeah. Do you feel like you kind of gave yourself a break on yourself after that happened? Not necessarily a break. I feel like I'm as busy as ever or, or busier now, but perhaps in, in sort of some grander projects that are less about myself and, and more about some holistic thing, whether it's now opening a restaurant. That's a really big thing for the first time where I'm really involved in it or having a baby, which I had in, in October last year. Congratulations. So, thank you. Thank you. So now I feel like that striving has a greater goal than just another check mark and then moving on to the next project I have to sort of fulfill. You won the world's best sommelier contest, which as I said, is a big deal and is held only every few years. But at one point you worked at McDonald's. McDonald's was my first employer when I was 15 years old. I did work there for uh, at least a year and a half or two years as a teenager and in other very non-luxurious restaurants where wine was very far away. But having, again, known you and spoken to you a little bit in the past, one thing that seems to come up is that when there have been older people around, you've enjoyed that in your life. Yeah. Having that sort of early awakening to the responsibilities of adult life, I oftentimes found myself sort of congregating with older friends. I was a little bit ahead in school, so by that nature, I had older friends to begin with. When I moved out to go study, I went to university, I studied engineering for a couple of years. I found some sort of a group of friends who were not only a couple of years older, which is usually the case in Europe. Most people take a year or two or three before they start going to college. It's not all 18-year-olds at school. Not all 18-year-olds. We had people who were 40-year-olds who were going to school, but most of them were, were probably around to 23 to 25. I was probably the youngest at 18. That experience of getting a slightly more sophisticated, mature group of friends, and not just the sort of hood rats that I grew up with in my hometown, was good for me in the sense of getting me to where I am now. Not just in terms of my current career path, but it was an introduction to other types of music and art and books. And part of that was, it was so we took every opportunity we could to throw some great dinners, and we always cooked food. So any random thing we could celebrate, we'd invite 15 people and cook food. And I can't say that I learned much about wine at the time, but I certainly like developed a, a taste for slightly better things in that sense. The social aspect of eating and drinking, that's not just about getting messed up and, and going to some shitty club, you know, which was what it was before. You kind of grew up in a working class neighborhood and then you went and hung out in a university town. Yeah, absolutely. And so it was a different thing. Absolutely. You were studying nanotechnology for a while. Yeah. To backtrack a little bit, as a teenager, as I said, I worked in 
in restaurants everywhere from McDonald's to like the local lunch place my dad's friend owned. I had a dream. I always had like a dream of working as, as a chef. I was like a passion. I wanted to do that. And I was testing stuff out at home. But as it is in most of Europe and in Sweden too, you kind of make that choice at age 15, 16. If you want to go to culinary school, you kind of cut yourself out from higher studies at a later point. And I did pretty well in school. So I decided to go down a more general route. And yeah, I was always at a knack for science, math, and physics and all that. So I did end up going to university studying nanotech engineering. Sort of halfway through, I, I, I went on a very extended hiatus, which I'm, I guess I'm still on. Those two first years gave me that basic sort of biology, chemistry, a lot of math, a lot of physics, enough that I'm really comfortable reading a scientific study right now. I'm really comfortable talking to winemakers about the more technical aspects of whatever it is. If they're talking total versus tartaric acid and titration, and all, I, I know what they're talking about. And you worked at the State Monopoly store for a while, or one of the I state- did. So that was my real, that was my first wine job. A friend that I was studying with worked there, and he uh, got me a gig at, at the store he was working. And I really uh, enjoyed it. I don't know if, how many of your listeners have been to uh, State Monopoly stores in Sweden. It's, for the most part, not a place for great wine. It, it's your average wine and liquor store. All the brands you'd expect to find in any sort of tax-free shop, etc., are there. But people come in and they ask you basic questions. you got to have at least a couple of answers. So he gave me a book to read and started bringing home a couple of things to taste. And the older staff there, which is basically a group of old ladies, they were sort of reinvigorated by having like <laughs> two boys working there. So they all of a sudden started like, you know, ordering samples and putting on a few tastings. And like they had a bunch of knowledge. They'd worked in there for 25 years. I really enjoyed it. And it, it challenged me in the sense that if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it right. So I, I decided to extend that. That summer break became a year and a half. And found out that I really, really liked this whole wine thing. But it kind of lined up with a general movement towards people getting more interested in wine in Sweden, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like the market started opening up in a few years earlier, but this was still like happening. People from my sort of parents' generation were very accustomed to having a couple of choices when it came to like, all right, there's red wine. And within the category of red wine, it starts with like the Algerian red. And then if you're like a little bit fancy, you drink the Rioja. And if you're really fancy, yeah, there's like a Bordeaux or two. And you can order some special things if you're a good contact. But the whole society in, in many ways is very sort of, homogeneous and no one wants to stand out as a general rule. I mean, of course, there's, I'm over-exaggerating, but it was only at this time that things really started opening up. They were allowing for import companies to start doing their, their thing, and, and it really ha- happened rapidly. I mean, now I think the country as a whole has one of the greatest markets. Almost everything's available, but at that time, we were kind of in the borderlands. That kind of segued into culinary school for you, right? Yeah, I still had this sort of dream of the restaurant life. And I had a, another colleague who's still today a, a good friend of mine who, who worked at the same retail store. And he basically told me that, hey, you're kind of wasting away here. If, if you've been here now for a year and a half, if you really want to do this wine thing, the only way you're going to learn and the only way you're going to sort of get enough 
knowledge and an experience with wine is to get out there on, you know, you need to work in a restaurant. You need to get out there and be a sommelier. You need to like taste wine. You need to taste many, many wines a day. Like this whole bringing home a bottle a day is not going to cut it. That sounds like great advice to me. Yeah. It triggered the whole thing in, in, in many ways. I took that advice and I applied to go to a culinary school way out in the forest, a village of 800 people where about 300 of them are students who study either cooking or wine or parts of the hotel school. And that's the same school that Jonas Sandberg went to. Yeah, he was there, I think, two years ahead of me. So what was the culture there? I remember he talked about it a little bit in his interview. I spent two years there. Two years of studying wine is a lot. But two years of studying wine when all you're doing is hanging out with other people who study wine and food is a lot, a lot. Because all you do then is taste and drink and put on dinners. And it was a really intense time of both studying and social drinking and tasting and working on the side. This was still in, in like the pre-financial crisis days when Bordeaux was still a thing. Coming back, I think, but it was still a big thing. Uh, champagne was massive. You know, things like Burgundy, we certainly drank a lot. Within the times, there was also a lot of American wine and Australian wine. And that whole thing was really, really big at that point. So people were kind of open or because, you know, sometimes in Europe, people are less open. Yeah. I think in, in Scandinavia, the culture is relatively different. People are very open. There's no domestic production of any wine. So because of the monopoly we talked about earlier, people are accustomed to you take what you get. People were drinking like the cheap wines were from Algeria and Tunisia and places like that. So drinking Argentinian wine was certainly not like a big turnoff for people. In like the higher echelons, of course, things like Bordeaux and Burgundy still always reign supreme. But for most people, drinking wine from everywhere was a very sort of egalitarian decision. I don't know what it was like when you were in college, but looking at the numbers now, it seems like cheap Apasamento wines in box are like a huge deal. It's massive. Yeah, it's massive. I'm not super up to date, but that trend was still going on. And I think people still, as a general rule, I think those kinds of wines are the most popular in Sweden, especially like dense, a couple of grams of sugar or a little bit more than that. It's called 15 grams of sugar, <laughs> especially in a convenient box you can put in your refrigerator and have a sip of every half an hour. It's a massive part of the market. It's an unfortunate reality of that sort of monopoly system where like this feedback loop of what people want is what they get. Like, oh, this is the most popular wine. Oh, we got to get two of those. We got to get three of those. And, and, you know, cycles swing hard. But this one has been going for a very long time. Kind of early days for you in restaurants. You kind of had a couple of false starts, kind of uh, took you a bit to find your right footing in the right restaurant. Yeah, absolutely. I knew I had a lot to sort of catch up to do. You know, my restaurant experience wasn't the right one and wasn't, wasn't as, as great as many of the other people I was studying with. So I, I thought what I wanted to do was work in fine dining. So that's the direction I took. I wanted to work in these ambitious tasting menu restaurants and do proper service. So that's the route I sort of tried to go down for a little bit. And the financial crisis in 2008 really put a halt to that, which I'm deeply grateful for at this point. The crisis kind of hit hard and... And we couldn't find a place to live that was proper. We moved around all kinds of secondhand apartments and it was, we had to sell all of our furniture and all, all that stuff. So I kind of lucked out and, and got, a, got a good apartment in my hometown in the south of Sweden, which is a convenient sort of commute to Copenhagen. And that restaurant scene in Copenhagen was so very much on, on the forefront, I think, globally at the time with Noma and all these other restaurants. What was that scene like? 
just the wine scene was so much, I think, better in Copenhagen, much more open-minded and much more sort of fair in terms of pricing wine. When I moved to Copenhagen, I just noticed that the same wines that we were, some of the same wines were you know, a third of the price and we were still making good margins on them. And, and there was much broader, broader taste in wine. There was a lot more of the classics you know, in terms of Burgundy and Rhone and Piedmont, etc. And at the same time, there was also this whole natural wine thing that was going super strong at that time. So yeah, it was just a more fun, hip, sort of eclectic thing. Like in Stockholm, when you placed a wine order at the time, you got the delivery truck. In Copenhagen, when you placed a wine, the dude came out on his bike and delivered those like 12 mixed bottles. That was the way it worked. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. It still works like that in many ways, which is fun. It's a small town. <laughs> and it's a much more liberal alcohol law. Like anyone can import wine. Denmark, for a country of about 5 million, has, I think, 4,000 registered wine importers, which is totally bananas. It's anyone. You just fill out a form and send it to the IRS, and then you're good. There's no like legislation in terms of who can or cannot. Everything was available, which is a good thing. The restaurant that I moved there for, a really great restaurant today, went bankrupt in their first iteration in the sort of throes of the financial crisis. I found myself without a job really quickly. That probably sucked. It really did, because I dragged my girlfriend to a town she wasn't from and didn't know anyone in, and we got this new apartment, and, and yeah, I was like jobless. So I, I used a couple of contacts and got in touch with a guy who ran the sort of sommelier association, which is a thing. And he was opening up a new restaurant, which is going to be a, this sort of American-style steakhouse. That's an odd concept. I mean, it's yeah. not what I would expect for... Absolutely not. And there was nothing like it before. And that's exactly what I thought when I took, I was like, I need a job, whatever, I'll open this restaurant with you and, and uh, we'll see and until like the next great fine dining project comes along, I'll do this. And then like, really quickly, I realized working there that it was so much more rewarding, especially in terms of wine, at least for me, for my take to work in a restaurant where I could utilize some of those like fine dining tricks that I'd, I'd learned in my like brief year, year and a half of working that kind of service. And use that in a casual setting and sell a ton of wine. Like this guy knew how to price wine and had really good contacts and left me in charge of the wine program and he was selling so much wine. Like I distinctly remember like some of the first first days of service and I had my little shelf where I put my like tasting glasses. Like I, it was so busy that I didn't have really have at time to like check wines and then serve them and then I leave myself a little taste for, like the end of the night. There was one of those nights, like two weeks in when I'd left three separate glasses of the Mendela Romane Conti and some like Harlan Estate and some Great Bordeaux and some of this and some of that and some like Rousseau and some Gaia and like I couldn't even remember what was what at the end of the night and I was like shit if I can do this in this type of setting I'd much rather do this than serve the same wines on a tasting menu for a month so I really resonated with that type of service and it was like fast pace and perhaps too stressful at times but it was great to, to work in that sort of environment I mean, it's fun to move products. Yeah. So this, this restaurant became a massive success, and I grew into sort of a multi-branch thing, which I ended up taking the wine director position over. In the end, after five years, it was uh, eight restaurants, and then we're going on 12, like, just before I, uh, I left. So we got very big. So over five years, that's a huge evolution, right? Yeah. And at the same time, I, was, I started the whole competition thing at the same time, so it was it was a period that was full of wine and not much else. The job gave me 
the sort of buying power to spend a lot of time traveling and meeting all the winemakers. And actually, you know, when you're buying for 2,000 guests a night, you have the capability to be there in the wine cellar and be like, oh, I like this barrel of wine. How about we do something with this? That whole thing was cool. It made me, you know, I traveled to all corners of the wine world and sort of regularly, more regularly to Europe, but also Australia and New Zealand and South America and California a couple times a year and that kind of thing. So it was, that was great. When did you meet Rajpar? I met Raj in Copenhagen. I don't remember what prompted it or what the occasion was. But Raj and a couple of other people like Jasmine Hirsch came pretty frequently. She came really frequently because we bought a lot of her wine and, and she came at least a couple times a year and probably brought Raj with her. I think those two really, in a way, prompted this whole move to, to the States. So how did that work out exactly? This gig that I had that had gone from one restaurant to eight restaurants, I was 29. I found myself much less on the floor, much less with the bottles, much less doing that thing that I loved, like being in that good type of stress where you're running around, you're serving people, you're trying to make people happy, and you're tasting wine and opening bottles and all that. I really started missing that. My workday was much more spreadsheets and negotiations and trying to hire people and all that. And that really started, uh, started getting to me. I was like, I'm 29. It's too early for me to do this. I need to get back on the restaurant floor and just, just hustle. And that's a hard thing to do when you have that like one, there's only one of those jobs. Or at the time, there was at least only one of those jobs in that city, like in a city like Copenhagen. There's not a lot of like multi-restaurant big jobs. So I kind of felt like I had to go on exile in some capacity to do that. I see. Because the social group is like, dude, what are you doing? Yeah. Are you going to go work in some like bistro just because you think that's a romantic notion of what wine is? Like, but that's what I wanted to do. I was looking at other opportunities and I thought I was going to London for a while and I thought I was going to Stockholm for a while. And, and uh, Raj was organizing his second trip to Fabiken. And there we went met up with Raj and, and Robert Bohr, who I now work with. And of course, at that time, I, I knew I was leaving, but I didn't know what to do. So we spent four or five days together, you know, eating and drinking every day in Stockholm and then in Fabiken and back. So... After spending a few days, I, I really clicked with Robert and his philosophy on not just wine, but just hospitality and this restaurant he had, Charlie Word, sounded really alluring and we liked the same type of hip hop and all these things that I really think is sort of my way of doing wine service is, you know, you can serve great bottles of wine and good food in jeans and sneakers and not be any worse for it. And I felt that was a really sort of like, okay, like this sounds great. I remember like I called my now wife, then girlfriend. I was like, hey, we've, you know, we've talked about Stockholm and, and all this. How about New York? And she was like, all right, well, I'm, I'm in. And I was, I kind of ended up here a couple of months later. There have been several times where I grooved on the same musical preferences as some other dude, but I didn't move continents to work with that person. Yeah. So going back to that sort of, childhood teenage thing i've always been that very calculated over performer type character i didn't become a chef because my grades were too good so i went studied more you know etc etc so in a way i felt like all right i'm turning 30 we know we want to have kids one day this is like the last chance for a spontaneous adventure 
You were going through a midlife crisis. Kind of. Kind of. <laughs> so, yeah, in, I mean, in many, in many ways, I was. I was. I'd spent so much time on studying for these competitions, and I'd spent so much time working and, like, growing, and, and, and in a very short time, I think, becoming quite a proficient wine person. So I felt like I needed an adventure, and, like, this is the last chance. What's the worst? We move back. Like, that was the worst that could have happened. So really sort of dove in and moved to New York. How is it different than Sweden or Copenhagen? The wine drinking community here is is amazing, and that really sort of drives the professional community too, or they drive each other, I guess. There's a lot of knowledge here, and there's a lot of granular knowledge, I think. There's a lot of experts on particular things. Like there's the guy who knows more about Rumier than I ever will, but he hasn't really been anywhere else in the wine world and hasn't really, doesn't really drink anything but that wine. There's a lot of deep knowledge in this city. The community otherwise, or sort of wine drinking culture, I think, has is, is gotten more similar. People are very open-minded. But there are sort of cliques, I guess, in this city too, and especially in terms of drinkers, people who only drink Burgundy and never ever drink anything else and wouldn't touch a bottle of wine from California if they weren't forced to do it. That certainly is a, is a real thing. Because it does feel like, in a way, you left sort of the hotbed of European natural wine kind of ahead of its time. Yeah. And then you came here right when the natural wine thing was starting to move into full swing. And in both cases, you've ignored it. You haven't been in that scene in either place. No, I haven't. And I really felt like what I was seeing in Copenhagen at the time was a bit of a turnoff for me. And I think it's been very moderated there too now. But at the time, it was, it was very dogmatic. You're on the train or you're not. If you list... 100 natural wines and one conventionally made wine, you're no longer in our crowd. That was like the thing that was going on in Copenhagen and places like Paris at the time too, uh, which was deeply off-putting to me. Partly, I think, because I had had that sort of classic wine education. I'd studied wine. I was forced to taste things that I didn't like. Whereas most people working their way up in restaurants in that scene, whether it's in Paris or Copenhagen, they're learning by tasting. And if they're only tasting one thing, then that's what they're learning. You wrote that like, really influential kind of viral blog post yeah. about like... Yeah, and I stopped writing blogs after that. I never <laughs> live up to that thing again. Uh, no, but you were like, you know, what's up with the wines kind of thing. Yeah. My take at a time, and this take still holds true, although I think the people who run those programs have gotten very much more discerning, was that the whole natural wine thing as a whole is great. I love that someone has prompted this movement, and as a whole, it's making conventional winemakers think about what they're doing. When you're at Moet Chandon and they're telling you they're all of a sudden like converting to organics and like that's a good thing and, and all props to those guys for prompting that whole conversation. But when it becomes really exclusive and dogmatic and now you're drinking by the numbers. Now you're like checking boxes. I felt that was d- deeply wrong. The reaction was one thing on the internet and another thing in, in real life. As is so many. Yeah. So th- there was a lot of back and forth online and a lot of people who were pissed off and thought I was calling them out, etc. But for the most part, the people who ran those wine programs, they were my guests and I was their guest and we hung out and drank wine together. And I still like a lot of those wines. My list was a mix of the two. You know, if it's good, it's good. Then you ended up in New York. And what did you decide to do when you wanted to put together a wine list? I still operate with that same mentality. And I think I came into Charlie Ray with, there was already something set in motion and Grant and Robert had done a great job of starting that list. 
And I loved that list, which is why I, I started working there. We like resonated on the kinds of wines we liked, which was a lot of the classics, a smattering of really cool up and coming stuff and good wine as a whole. And it doesn't have to be one label or another. I think what I did with that list is maybe expand the range a little bit, like finally create a little Iberian section because I really dig what's going on in Spain at the moment. The last time I was at Charlie Bird, it seemed like the Spanish thing was more blown up than I had remembered on the wine list. Yeah. I think it's one of the most exciting places in the world of wine today. And that's what I'm doing with the new restaurant list at our new project, Legacy Records, which is essentially the same kind of philosophy as Charlie Bird, like deeply rooted in the classics that we enjoy, which is Champagne and Burgundy and the Rhone and Piedmont and Tuscany, pretty much. And then there's cool stuff from wherever they make good wine. Were there wines that you hadn't had access to in Europe that you found yourself buying and tasting in New York? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing that's very different and one thing that that I, I realized coming here is that there's more to Italy than Barolo and Brunello. And in places like Scandinavia, we do drink a lot of Italian wine. It's one of the most popular categories as a whole, but it's very much those like classics. Either it's Barolo or it's Brunello, Chianti, or it's really inexpensive bulk wine from Sicily or Puglia. You know, I've been to Liguria, but I've never bought a bottle of Ligurian wine in Scandinavia. I mean, that's a thing that exists here. There's so much more breadth in the Italian selections here, and so much more depth too, and you can find so much old Italian wine here. That doesn't really exist in most of Europe. So did you see differences in what the customers want in terms of service? I think one of the main differences is, is that there's a degree of trust here that I don't see as much in Scandinavia. There's a lot of like, all right, you're just going to give me a bottle of wine, and it's don't spend more than $250 and you'll be fine. Find me something you think is cool and, and we'll work with what we're eating and let's do that. Whereas there was a lot more like picking and asking and that kind of thing in, in Scandinavia. Also much more humility, and especially I guess after, after the crisis, but this is the thing here too, I know, but a lot more of that even if you have money, you don't want to show that you have money. So if you dine out, you're going to get something pretty humble. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a lot more religious and kind of social under and overtones to drinking in public in Sweden than in New York, right? Like it's kind of more recently okay in the last couple of decades, but historically it was like, shouldn't you be working? <laughs> it's true, but at the same time, like it's not so much drinking alcohol. It's more the, there's a real thing and it's, it's hard to explain, but it's part of that whole culture. So you don't want to show that you're, special you don't want to show that you're someone you don't want to show that you're talented or rich or whatever it may be whereas it's very different here I mean, and it's, it's the just, opposite here. here it's very opposite but it's very much a cultural thing in sweden to to play down your persona right so there is a lot of public drinking there's no problem being outside sitting in a park drinking a beer or or getting shit-faced on vodka at two in the morning but if you're drinking wine all of a sudden, or at least this is the way it was a few years ago, now you're a snob. Or if, even if you order like the beer that's a dollar more, like, really? Who do you think you are? <laughs> do you feel like that played into your service persona? Because you have a sort of understated persona for a famous sommelier. I think I've found a, a good balance. I had to play it up a little bit when I moved here. I realized pretty early that, oh, like all these people do play on their 
quirks and their persona a little bit more. And that's Stop how, talking about John Slover. <laughs> exactly. That's also how you gain sort of familiarity and trust and loyalty with, with people here. You find your crowd, right? Definitely, I think I found a, a good balance. I'm not never going to be the, the sort of puff my chest out guy, but there's no reason to be too humble and understated too. You can, you can find a good medium, I think. Are there specific moments that were kind of realizations along that route? Were there specific things that happened where you said, oh, okay, maybe. When I started meeting people here and seeing the way some people carry themselves, I was like, oh, this, this guy must be a, you know, he must know so much. And wow, you realize, oh, you've, you've, never, you've never been to Burgundy? How, what, are you, you know, what are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a little bit the young sommelier culture that's mm-hmm. new here too. Because it used to be everyone was 40, 50, 60 years old. And, but now you see people overcompensate sometimes. Right. Some of the younger guys. Mostly guys, I think we're talking about. I think mostly guys, absolutely. <laughs> so we kind of skipped over a huge part of your career, which has been the training for competition right. aspect right. of your career, which really started back in Sweden, right? Yeah, it's very much a parallel track. So all the way back to like 2007, 6, 7, when I was studying at culinary school, we hosted sort of a training camp for a guy that was going to go up, a Swedish sommelier who was training for the world's best sommelier competition. He ended up winning it as the first Swedish person. Larsson? Andreas yeah, Andreas Larsson. And I was part of orchestrating that training for him and setting up all these weird practical exercises that he had to go through and blind tastings and cigar lighting and all these kind of stage performance things. Uh, at the time, I thought it was kind of silly. And in a way, it still is kind of, it's such a niche thing. It's such a weird thing to start competing in. But I realized that this was something that could keep me going. I noticed that so many of my classmates and myself included, once you get your first job, once you get that sommelier title on your job description, all of a sudden you're, you're done learning. You're like, I'm done. I'm a finished product. I'm gonna, now I'm going to only learn about the stuff that I really like. And that, that didn't resonate well with me. So... A colleague of mine at this first place I worked at in Stockholm, a restaurant called La Rouge, he was going to participate in the best meal in Sweden, which is going to be held like six months later. But he asked me to help him train, and I, I put out blind tasting for him and timed him decanting and put up a bunch of like weird practical exercises, you know, the classics, like pour 15 glasses of champagne from a magnum at a perfectly even level and put them out for your guests. And oh, and I put lipstick on one of the glasses and all that sort of stuff. You put the lipstick on, did you? (laughs) Absolutely. How did your girlfriend feel about that? (laughs) So halfway through that process, I just realized like, hey, me and I can do this. If this guy can do it, I can do it. Like, why why not? So I I enrolled in in, in the competition and we trained together. And my goal was nothing else but to, and this is a friend of mine, so it sounds mean when I say it, but we had the same position and he was a little bit senior than me at this job. So I was like, all right, I, I can think I can beat this guy. I didn't care about winning the competition. I was just like, I'm going to come back with, like, at least I won over him. <laughs> you know? Was he one of those guys that ordered the beer that was a dollar more? You're no, like, what's up with this guy? He was definitely one of those guys. That's the way it started. I was like, all right, I can beat him. I enrolled and I, I didn't win that first year and I definitely shouldn't have, but I, I ended up in a runner-up position and I did pretty well. And I, from that point, I was hooked. I mean, I should say that I still think like, competing as a sommelier or taking any type of certification, whether it's master wine or a master sommelier or becoming the world's best sommelier, 
it doesn't mean that much to me as a whole. Like I don't hire based on certification or titles. I tend to think that the people who give me the best service may be master psalms or they may not. It doesn't really factor into how I think about people doing their job. But it seems to have had large ramifications for you now. Yeah, absolutely. I started down this path in a way just to sort of further educate myself. I was like, this is a way that I can become better and can keep becoming better because you got to force yourself. If you're going to go out there and compete and be judged and have people look at you and film you and rate your performance and eventually if you do well, you're going to be up on stage in front of an audience watching you blind taste wine or booze or whatever it is, then you have to do well. So you have to study, you have to train, you have to taste a bunch of different wines and travel and do all these things. So it was a way to me, for me to push myself to, to learn more. And it may have become an obsession at some point during that time. And after I won the best something in Sweden and the Nordic countries and sort of got on track for like the big competitions, which is really Europe and the world competition, which is every three years, that's kind of where I was like, all right, well, I, I know I'm not bad at this. Like, if I do this right, I can get in and get out. Is that the goal? Because, you know, sometimes people kind of, it takes them a while. That was the goal because I saw a guy like Gerard Basset, who, you know, is a master sommelier, master wine, world sommelier, like a real sort of unique person in, in the world of wine, who he was just always such a humble, great character while knowing so extremely much. But I saw that it took him, like, I think he won the best sommelier in France in like the early 90s. And then it took him to, 2010 to become the best in the world and he was like always the favorite for at least 10 years he was the guy who was like he's gonna win he's gonna win and it took him 25 years of like very intense hard work i'm not gonna speak on his behalf but i know and for my part i neglected you know family and i broke up with my then girlfriend and you know all these things like you lose social life all you do like you work really hard on opening restaurants and doing that whole thing and your career is going fast and all your free time you're thinking about i gotta gotta go home and study hungarian synonyms for grape varietals it becomes kind of hard so for me it was very much if i can do this right i can sort of get in and get out i want to spend 20 years doing this and only this it's not just that it's hard it it sort of has a ramification in some people i've seen where they start to kind of not like wine yeah i've seen people where it doesn't seem like they're so in love with the subject anymore right. I was close to that a couple of times. I caught myself doing that and took a couple of breaks and like the most intense studying, like right before the big competition. So like, all I'm doing is blind tasting. I'm never like drinking wine. It's just blind tasting, blind tasting all the time. And all I'm studying, all I'm reading about is stuff that I don't really, not necessarily don't care about. But again, when you're memorizing Bulgarian appellations and you know, you're never ever reading about producers or wines that you enjoy, then you you can certainly get into that groove, especially when you're doing it so intensely. Yeah, you can you can sort of fall out of love with wine. That's a real danger. So I had to check myself a couple of times on that journey and just be like, all right, we're taking a week off. Now, the interesting part about you is that you kind of had a, a system. You even had like a computer program, right? Having those like two years of studying nanotech engineering taught me a lot about how to study and it's really hard to study deep math and all those things, which I, I was never like good enough to be a genius at any of that, but I was good enough to learn how to study. 
a I, I had a uh, had a mentor who who helped me who was actually the guy who gave me my first sommelier job. He competed himself and he helped coach Andreas and then helped coach me. So he was really good about being methodical. Even though I lived in a different country and then in a different continent, when we were training for the final competition in 2016, I would wake up in the morning. My wife would have put up two flights of four wines in the fridge. I was not allowed to go in the refrigerator for the last six months. It was full of wine, and she was like coravanning samples for me. And then I would record a video of myself blind tasting. I'd send it to him, and I'd get feedback. You're saying, um, too much. You obviously got tripped up by this wine, so you took four minutes instead of three minutes, and you lost time there, so you couldn't finalize the thing. And we trained practical elements. We timed everything. Like, all right, it takes you six seconds to cut the foil off of this bottle. Like, let's go back and watch. We videotaped everything. And what I studied, theory, I put it all into a computerized program. Learning languages, they have this really great system where you kind of have to feed back information to yourself every so often so you can keep learning it and not to get overwhelmed by the sheer number of facts. You kind of have to push some stuff aside. So I input all these questions for myself. What are the Grand crews? How large are they? What producer makes this wine? And then you feed those back to yourself. And the questions that are easy, you push further and further into the future. So the first time you may see it tomorrow, and then you'll see it in a week if you answer correctly, and then you see it in a month, and then a year. Whereas the things that are hard, you'll see day after day after day until you can start spacing them out in time too. So that, that's the basics of the system. Because I ended up with a flashcard book of like 20,000 cards. There's no way to go through that. Unless you like say, I know that I, at this point, I'm comfortable with these things. I can see that in a year. Whereas this, I need to see every week. And it's scary to see now when I've stopped doing like the flashcard thing, how much disappears quickly. For me, that tells you a little bit about it, though, because I think one of the reasons it's disappearing quickly is you don't use that information all the right. time. Because a lot of times it is like Bulgarian DOCs yeah. or, you know, it's just not part of your work life, right? Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I don't mean to criticize the system, but that to me is one of the things about that system. I think it's fair to criticize that system. I think, it's, I think it's, it is good to force people to learn about different aspects of the world of wine. But I think we've gotten down the road of esoterica being a measure of difficulty. And I don't think that's necessarily the best way. You could construct a really hard test on Bordeaux or a really hard test on Burgundy for like even the true experts. It doesn't all have to be the weirdest. Chinese wine regions, whatever it is. It's not relevant yet. Maybe one day, but right now it's not. I don't know a lot of wine people who video themselves and then watch their performance back. What did you see about yourself? It showed of a few things that I still like utilize on the floor, like hand movements. And I still open wine a certain way just because I know now that that's the most like effective, elegant way to move my hands. It, it gets to a very granular level, but... I still like utilize these things. I don't leave trash on a station. That goes somewhere. And the wine key goes the same place it always goes. And I did pay an acting coach to like help me figure out how to not be a nervous wreck when I walk out on stage. She taught me a lot about breathing and posture and stance and body language, really, which was insanely helpful. And just like getting that confidence to get going once you're you're out there and people are filming and there's a spotlight on you and, and you're trying to you're trying to do something that in reality is really easy. Like if you work in a restaurant, it's not that hard to serve like four people who want different things and are 
difficult diners who are trying to trip you up with various questions and, and scenarios. I mean, that's all it is. Like, worst things happen on every single service and every single restaurant. But once you're in that stressful scenario, 50% of your grace and knowledge just goes out the window. Putting things in the same place and keeping the station clean. I mean, for me, that's just a way of controlling stress in a busy environment. Absolutely. If the thing is in the same place, then I don't freak out. Yeah. But you're doing this for a competition where there's like a 5,000 person audience, right? Right. You're performing improv theater on a stage. So is there an element of Swedish nationalism in this contest? Because Larson won. Was it a big thing in the scene to win again? It, it, it definitely was a big thing in the scene. It definitely was. And I think we, at that point, it was like a, it was certainly an indicator that we were getting serious. Larson was like in the eyes of the French and the Italians and the Swiss who had been winning this competition since its inception. You know, this was, that was basically, it was rotated. It was mostly French and a couple of other people. But it was, in their eyes, you know, that was kind of a fluke. And then when I won, it was like, oh, I think they, they thought like, oh shit, we have to like up our game a little bit. So yeah, there's, there's kind of an element, not of nationalism as such, but like we want to keep this going. I think the generational approach also that we've had in Scandinavia and in, in Sweden in particular, where we help each other get better was something they didn't have in these other countries. So it's very much every man for himself. Um, and that's important. We'll set the stage for me a little bit. What was it like in Mendoza when you took the test? So in Mendoza, I was, I no longer had the rights of the sort of underdog. I had won the best of me in Europe three years earlier. So doing that, you've already sort of competed against most people you're going to compete against. So I probably came in as maybe, if not the favorite, then one of like top five. Whereas earlier, I, I thought I could like sneak under the radar and, and do it. Now I, there was a little bit more pressure, but I felt really good. I'd studied a lot as much as I think I could have. This would have probably been my last competition had I not won. Also, I was like, I'm, not that I can't do it anymore, but there are more important things to focus on. I also came into it with a slightly different attitude. When I did it in 2013, in both the European competition and in the one in Tokyo, World's Best, where I, I tried and I really like, I really wanted to win. I really, really wanted it. I really thought it was going to be like a, such a game changer for me. Whereas this last time now, when, when I ended up winning, I had much more of a relaxed attitude. Like, my life is pretty good. Like, this is cool. If I can come out of it with something, it's great. But I live a good life. I've got a good career. I've got a good sort of life at home. I'm, I'm not, like, I don't need this. And I think that's what, in the end, made me relax a couple of notches and put a smile on and actually probably do a much better performance. I was, I was feeling pretty good and I was doing pretty well, I think. I mean, I must have. No one's told how the results go. Everything is sort of behind the scenes. So on the final day, all these remaining 15 candidates are taken up on stage. You've gone and sweated now for a day and a half since you performed your last test. Taken up on stage and the audience is in front of you. They're live streaming this all over the world. And then, only then, do they tell you like, three of you are going to stay and, and compete. So like, it's no wrecking. Even though I thought I had my tricks to stay calm, it, it certainly broke down at several points. So what are those tricks though? Stuff like earlier, I tend to stand sort of shallow, like legs together and something. And was taught to like take a really wide stance. It's like stand straight, 
puff up a little bit, like take a couple of deep breaths and like it's all about how you perform and not about the end result. That's really kind of kind of what it's about. So you're down to three and then what happens on stage? Yeah, we're down to three. I am lucky enough to be the first one out, which I prefer. You can like ride the first initial wave of stress a little bit because the other two are taken backstage and they're like, they, they're sitting there for a good 45 minutes to an hour before this is their turn to get out there. It's a service test. Yeah, it's a service test. There are elements of like, there are rapid fire questions and blind tastings, but most of it's service. So if you can ignore the camera and the, and the audience, it's like I said before, it's really not that hard. I mean, it's restaurant service. Remember, we were like decanting a bottle of red wine and mid sort of service, someone is like, no, I don't want this. I want a bottle of white wine. And like, of course, and that's really what could happen on the floor. And you're, you're also under a time pressure on the floor, right? You got to see the other three tables. It's not, not really any more difficult. So if you can just get into the mind state of that regular workflow where you're working gracefully and elegantly and smiling and being hospitable, then that's, that's it. And I was lucky enough to do that, I think. I mean, it's interesting because you really moved away from the fine dining idiom in your own life. The restaurants you work in deliver fine food and fine service in a nice atmosphere, but they're not ballet service places. But it feels like you really made the effort to put some of that kind of ballet-esque feeling into your service for this competition. Oh, absolutely. Especially when we talk about filming service. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of like, how do you move gracefully? And how do you move your hands when you talk? And how do you move your hands when you open bottles of wine? So there is a lot of that to it. And I, I think it was really beneficial for me to do it and to at least optimize every little aspect of the whole thing. And that said, I, I wish there was an element of these competitions or certifications that wasn't sort of the tuxedo wearing sommelier, because that's what it is. So first hour after the win is announced, what's going on with you? It was a real, I think, real sense of disbelief. The flip side of, of going out on stage first is that you're then stuck behind stage when the other two are competing. And in those one and a half hours, I convinced myself, I like, wow, I should have done this. And like, oh, I, messed, I really messed that up. I can see that now. And like, I convinced myself that I, I'd done really poorly. So I was really in, in, in a genuine state of disbelief when they announced that I had won. I thought I'd done too many mistakes. So first that disbelief and then a real sense of relief, I think. It was more, more relief than happiness. It was just like, oh, Jesus, I've, I've finally, like, it took so much work. And, so much, and now I'm like, I can say that I'm done. Two years have passed. Yeah. How do you feel about it? I think immediately afterwards, I had to decide if this was going to be my thing. Am I going to like own the world's best sommelier role? And that's now who I am, where people pay me to fly around and taste their wine or whatever it is, where you're all of a sudden a consultant, which is cool. I mean, it's, it's great. You're traveling and tasting a lot and getting paid pretty well, and you live that life. Or am I going to do the thing that I really enjoy doing, which is working in restaurants? It was not an easy decision at the time, but I think it was the right decision. I still do things that are sort of world's best sommelier. Someone needs someone with that title related. You jump on various projects and some of them are really fun, but I can be really picky about what I do. 
I'm really happy doing what I'm doing here with my family and with the people that I work with. That's what I'm going to keep doing. Now you're opening a restaurant. Before, you know, Charlie Bird had been open already. Mm-hmm. In New York, what's that like? It's stressful. It's, uh, it's an 18-hour day uh, proposition. It's, uh, it's tough. It's hopefully down the line really rewarding. I like putting systems in, into motion. I'm good about that kind of thing. Even if you put a lot of talented people together in a room, if it's a new room and new rules and new menu and all that, half of their skill and knowledge goes out the window and probably goes for me too. And it takes a long time before they're a team and we're working as a team. So an added challenge. It's important to learn the business aspect of it too. You can be a great floor sommelier, but if you don't know how to run a basic Excel spreadsheet, you're not going to get very far and you're going to be very stressed and you're going to have your bosses shouting at you. And that's not what you want to do. What kind of dad do you want to be? Uh, that's a really, really tricky one. I, I want to be a calm and non-temperamental and wise dad, I think. I hope to distill a little bit of what I've learned into some sort of, not, not in a preachy, teachy way, but I think there is something I would like her to, or I would like to be able to communicate better than I'm doing right now what I've learned in my life so she can use that if she wants to or not. What do you think are some of the takeaways of what you've learned in your own life? Like, what are some of those lessons? No matter what you do, you should strive to be really good at it. Not to the point where it breaks you or you become obsessive or become a detriment to people around you. Uh, You become nasty and temperamental and burn out. But whatever you do, you should do well. And for my daughter, if that's academia or working in restaurants or whatever it is, she should do what makes her happy. Try to find something that's a passion. I mean, that's what brought me to wine in the first place. Like I realized I could work with something that was fun. And you didn't have to just sit behind a computer all day. And, and I've had various those moments later in my life too, but you have to like course correct. But yeah, you should try to find something that makes you happy. And then if you can make that your work, that's a good thing. And then don't let that work become just work. Right? It has to stay fun. Arvid Rosengren grew up looking after his siblings and is now looking after a small child and a new restaurant. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Arvid Rosengren of Legacy Records, the new restaurant in Manhattan. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Skella has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.
what I will miss and what I'm going to really, really hope to strive to recreate is that really intimate personal atmosphere that Charlie Bird has. Given that it's a quirky, small space, you're really close to everyone, just like physically close, like you're close to your guests and you're close to your coworkers. And it's not optimal in terms of service along like a weird, narrow dining room, but it really, it really is a relatively comfortable and a relatively sort of cozy, intimate experience. Trying to do that in a place where the ceilings are high and, and everything's new and a little shiny, and it's going to be hard. And that's going to be, I think, our main challenge is to make people relax the same way they do at Charlie Bird. 